0: Welcome to Act In Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. Russell Kirk has long been known as perhaps the most important founding father of the American conservative movement in the second half of the 20th century. In the early 1950s, America was emerging from the Great Depression and the New Deal and facing the rise of radical ideologies abroad the American right seemed broken and adrift. Then, in 1953, Russell Kirk released his masterpiece, The Conservative Mind. More than any other published work of the time, this book became the intellectual touchstone for a reinvigorated movement and became a sea change in Americans' attitudes towards traditionalism. Today, I am happy to bring you a rebroadcast episode about the story of Kirk's life and work. Bradley Berzer, who is a professor of history and the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies at Hillsdale College, joins our team on this episode to talk about his biography of Russell Kirk, originally published in 2015. As always, the show notes for this and all of our episodes can be found at our blog at acton.org. That's A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G.
1: Well, I am pleased to be joined today on Radio Free Acton by Dr. Bradley J. Berzer. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with Dr. Berzer, he is the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies and a professor of history at Hillsdale College. Uh, also, the second visiting scholar of conservative thought and policy at the University of Colorado. Brad, first of all, welcome to Radio Free Acton. Thanks, Mark. I'm very glad to be here. You, you know, seeing that, that position at the University of Colorado, I remember when that position was created, it caused a bit of a stir because people were like, what are they putting a little... Cage where they're putting a conservative in there that the students can go by and look at the weird specimen. And... Uh,
2: they, they threw bananas at me. It was yeah. great. Yeah. Well,
1: is, is that uh, is that
2: an accurate understanding no. of that position? It was. It was incredible, actually, Mark. Um, uh, there is no way, even if even if I had to, I could not come up with a single bad incident that happened. It was one of the best years of my life. Oh, that's great. Uh, to hear. I, I was I was integrated into the faculty perfectly. I was not a specimen. Good. Good. <laughs> so good at good, least good. if I was, I didn't know. So <laughs> so, that's that's well that's the best way to do it that's right well you're here today
1: uh at the acton institute as part of our acton lecture series for the fall of 2015 we've had a very busy series this year uh and uh you delivered an address based on your new book that actually as we record this has been released is today actually today the release day.
2: is the official release day yeah november
1: 5th Uh, Guy Fawkes Day. That's right. And uh, you're releasing a biography of Russell Kirk, and it's entitled Russell Kirk, American Conservative. And uh, the one unfortunate thing is that I wasn't able to get my hands on a copy prior to this, so I haven't read it yet. But I do have a copy now, and I'm going to read it. And uh, basically, I want to just talk a little bit about Russell Kirk, um, who's a man who probably people should know more about. I need to know more about in these times um, and so what I want to start off with is just a basic question about the, the scene when Russell Kirk stepped onto the stage. Um, he's one of the men who's credited probably kind of the founding father of the American conservative yes. movement. Uh, when he, in his, his, the, the way he attained that title is 1953, he published the book, The Conservative Mind. So the question then becomes, how was conservatism viewed in the United States prior to that? Uh, what was the state of things?
2: Yeah, oh, that's a great question, Mark. And, and I'll just give you a little bit of background. Russell Kirk was born in 1918 and he died in 1994. He is credited. You're absolutely right. He is credited with the 1953 book, The Conservative Mind, as being the founder of conservatism. But there had always been, well, always, there had been since the rise of the progressives, there had always been opposition. In the teens and 20s, there had been a number of groups that had really opposed the progressives. You got people like the humanists out of Harvard and Princeton, led by Irving Babbitt and Paul Lerner Moore. There were a number of Southern agrarians who were opposed to progressivism. A number, strangely enough, and this is a story that's barely been told, but a number of science fiction writers. In fact, science fiction as a genre got its start being anti-leftist. Interesting. And so you had, And then you had libertarians and you had a lot of anarchists. And the anarchists, these were respectable anarchists, not bomb-throwing ones. Sure, but, you're
1: J.R.R. Tolkien <laughs> types of anarchists.
2: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, philosophical yes. anarchists. Uh, in America, it would have been Albert J. Nock, would have been the most prominent one, Episcopalian priest, minister, and commentator, also a, a college professor. But all of these groups had never really gotten along, and partly just because they had no reason to talk to one another. And the one thing they had in common was they disliked the progressives. What happens then with World War II is we come out of that as one of two superpowers. And the great question that's asked by all these returning vets and America as a whole is, what did we just do? We just (laughs) we just expended four years of men and resources. And of course, we ended up killing one tyrant, but we've got another now on the loose. And so we have got rid of Hitler, which is great, but now we have Stalin. And one of the most important questions in America in the 1940s was, who are we? And a lot of people started talking about our roots being, well, here's the American founding. How do we judge that? What's Western civilization? How do we fit in? So there were a number of pieces that came out in the late 1940s that started playing with the idea of conservatism, but there was also the term individualism and libertarianism. None of them were very satisfying. And when Kirk wrote The Conservative Mind, he was actually still very libertarian at that point. But he chose conservative because he thought, look, we have to preserve something. Part of what we're doing is not just being anti-progressive. We're actually older than they are. So we don't need to be reactionary. We need to cling to our first principles. Sure. So conservatism was really a way, a big tent umbrella term to bring all of these disparate schools together to show that, hey, we're not something new on the scene reacting. We were actually here long before you progressives, but now we're reasserting ourselves. And that's, I think, for a lot of people in America, average people, people you're know, working in suburbia, people who had just gotten back from the war. Conservatism made a lot of sense. Sure. And it was a term then that caught on. Even Eisenhower grabbed onto it. Now, The original title for
1: The Conservative Mind, the title that Kirk submitted it to the publisher with, was The Conservative Route. And he wasn't talking about conservatives routing their opponents. He was talking about the conservatives (laughs) being routed. Um, So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how progressivism... Had been so ascendant in the yeah. early 20th centuries and, and, and how the conservatives were routed.
2: Yeah. Uh, again, Mark, just a great question. And I'm impressed. I mean, that's that's one of those insider baseball questions <laughs> that people actually know the original title. Uh, yeah, that's what Kirk had called it. And in his dissertation. And he was trying to make an argument, a a kind of a proto-Christian argument, because he himself was not Christian yet. He wouldn't become fully Christian until 1964. So we're still a ways away from that. But he was flirting with it. And the reason he chose that title comes really from kind of an old Catholic Western tradition that argues that the entire history of the world is the world of the long defeat, and that all we can really do in this world is... Proclaim truth and keep truth alive, and we wait for God to claim victory in eternity. So it it was actually, even though Kirk was not religious, he very much respected the religious argument, and he loved the kind of mythological image of us fighting this prolonged defeat and that's what we're doing so we're not going out for victory because that's god but we are going out to wage the war every generation
1: similar to whitaker chambers uh, uh, absolute assertion
2: that he was joining the losing side Exa- abs- yeah. without question that the only difference is chambers of course had been raised in marxism and a lot of what Chambers, even when Chambers was a conservative, he still held on to a lot of his Marxist ideology, in particular that idea that history is all loss if you're not on the progressive side. Sure. Uh, Kirk was coming from a slightly different perspective, but the argument's the same. Now I
1: wanna I, I wanna ask this question. I wanna I want you to, to tell me if I've read this sentence right, because I picked up a copy of the Conservative Mind. I had never read it, I'm reading it right now. Good. Um, but I noticed right on the first page. He says, and this is a quote from the book, we live in an age of disintegrating liberal and radical notions. Now, when he's talking about liberal and radical notions, how how is he using the term liberal there? Is he using that to to say that we're seeing the progressive... Uh, movement uh set up these structures that are now failing,
2: yeah, uh that's a harder one to answer because Kirk is not exactly clear about that ever he uh and th- and this was you know something I think was good for him. Kirk really would rather talk about things he liked than things he didn't like, yeah. and he really wasn't that good about talking about things he didn't like, but in the same way that in the conservative mind he's building. You know, again, to use a religious term, he's building a kind of hagiography, almost a, a group of saints who carry this eternal truth with them in a variety of different ways. He also kind of created a demonography or uh, demonology about liberalism. And for him, and th- he is not unique in this, Christopher Dawson at the same time makes this argument. C.S. Lewis makes this argument. The argument of many conservatives, to use that term broadly in the 20th century, but especially among British ones was that liberalism was merely a transition between uh, between Christianity, Christendom, and Marxism. That is, liberalism was not something in and of itself. It inherited the ethics of Christianity without the truth of it. And therefore, from the very beginning, liberalism was always hanging by the threat of its own death. And that meant, and this, this gets into some really esoteric things, what that meant for conservatives was that we conservatives basically owned creativity and imagination, and it was the liberals who were completely desiccated. They were dry when it came to any new ideas. All they were doing, though they didn't even know it, they were basically making Christian arguments without God, and that that would work fine for two or three generations, but suddenly a generation will come along and say, why are we doing this? There's no anchor, and then it's dead.
1: Well, one of the things uh, that that I... Thought of as you were talking, you you, you've given your lecture, and I I was I was thinking about what I was going to ask while you were talking, and I, I I noticed that Kirk when he when he talks about conservatism, he's not talking about it as a program or a political platform or an ideology. In fact, he's what he's doing is he's setting out a set of principles. Yes. And then what what the job of the conservative is to do is to, in all circumstances in every generation, to reapply those principles to those situations.
2: Is that a fair... I think that's absolutely correct. So what are the principles? Well, the principles are always really come down to one important thing. Are you treating another person with dignity? And I think in our day and age where we throw around dignity so easily, that doesn't mean as much as it might have in the 1950s. But when Kirks said that we treat each other with dignity, we are essentially conserving the best of what our ancestors had given us. And one of the arguments Kirk makes, and he takes this from Edmund Burke, is that every generation has the high duty of passing judgment on the previous generation, not in an arrogant way, quite the opposite, but that our job is to say, okay, this is what our mothers and fathers gave us. So we can either pass it on because it's good, We can reform it because it's mostly good, but has problems, or we get rid of it because it's no longer applicable to our day and age, or it violates human dignity. A a prime example of that in the American, the most obvious example would be slavery. Here it is. Clearly, it's tradition. Tradition says we can do this, but it violates the norms of humanity. It violates dignity. And Kirk was very concerned with that. And in that sense, I think this is a hard thing to sell. Because dignity sounds great, but Kirk means this in the way that Socrates meant it. He meant it, means it in the way Cicero or Jesus meant it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't mean it in the way we might just mean, oh, hey, be nice to that guy because he's also going through problems. There's sure. a lot loaded with that. And, and of course, as Mark, we talked about in the lecture a little bit, Kirk lived that out by giving money away, by helping people, and never expecting anyone to do the same for him. Amazing generosity that, that you talked about there. Honestly, uh, shocking. To the point where, of course, I understand it because I've grown up reading the lives of the saints, but to actually see it, it's almost unbelievable.
1: We should add, for the people who weren't at the lecture and and are wondering what we're talking about, Kirk would (laughs) receive letters— Requesting assistance from scholars and and people, as you said, in the 1950s. Yeah. And he would often just stuff money into an envelope and send it to them. Absolutely. And then would not ask for anything. Oh, he forgot.
2: And it wasn't that he was just forgetful. I mean, he forgot purposely. uh, No, it's a loan, right? And you never expect to help. You never expect that back. Um, and he, but it wasn't just in the fifties. Before he got married, he did that all the time. After he got married in nineteen sixty four, that money went in other directions. But it was still always used to help somebody. It just generally became, and I think part of this is a Nets genius. His wife, uh, she was a really a very good social networker. He was a brilliant guy, but he wasn't the most social creature. I mean, he was a true academic. Oh yeah. Um, whereas she is a community organizer in the best sense. She's someone who makes things happen. So that same money that was there they then used to help the homeless or help refugees from anywhere around the world. And they did that yeah, you know, and, and still do, but they did that until Kirk's death. That their house up in Macosta, Michigan, you never as the daughters would say, they never knew who they'd wake up with to have <laughs> breakfast with. Yeah. Because it could be anybody. That's that's one of the great things
1: about the Acton Institute is that we're not located in Washington, D.C. We're here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Amen. And uh, my family actually camps in Big Rapids up in Mecosta oh, County. God. And <laughs> nice. I, I will say the cover of your book has that fantastic uh, sort of profile portrait of Russell Kirk. Yeah. I, I've seen it listed as... Um, Russell Kirk, Big Rapids, 1986. Every time I drive through Big Rapids, I'm like, where did he... I wonder where the studio was that yeah, Russell Kirk came to to have that picture taken. I
2: actually think that might have been at the newspaper. Oh, really? There. Yeah. I don't know if there's still a newspaper in Big Rapids, but it, when there was, they used to do quite a few stories on him. It's entirely And possible. I would guess that's where that's from.
1: And, and the, you mentioned Piety Hill, the house yes, that his, his grandfather Mecosta. built and he lived in. Yes. And uh,
2: it's... It's still there. Yeah, most of it. It uh, it was what that what happened was the main house burned down in 1975, actually on Ash Wednesday of all days. <laughs> and uh, it burned down. And then they built what was left of it. They built around a new home and it doesn't look much like the old home, but it's really a hodgepodge of the old and new. And it, it works very very well. But have you been up there, Mark? I have not. It's, um, it's a very interesting thing because what they've done is they've taken pieces from the old Big Rapids City Hall. Uh, they've taken pieces of architecture from St. Michael's Church, which was torn down. And they've taken all these, re- including a mirror from a Chinese restaurant. They've taken all of these things that shouldn't fit together. But do, and they're all part of the architecture of the house, and it, it is one of the strangest and most beautiful places I've ever seen. See, it, it's it a fantasy an, land. It's an bizarre. interesting
1: metaphor for the house of a man whose prime yes. role in life was to bring together these disparate movements. It fits. Now, I, I have to since I've got you here, I have to ask. Sure. There's a there's a section of photos in the book, uh, of course, and one of the photos shows one of the lions at the entrance to the
2: property, and the lion is wearing a toupee. <laughs> yes, that was Kirk. Was very funny. But a lot of people don't know this. He loved playing practical jokes uh, to the point where he would actually – he would have prominent guests, people who'd won major literary awards. And in the middle of the night, he would sneak into the room under their bed and scare them. (laughs) Uh, He was truly – and one of my favorite moments in his life, they got to meet the pope, uh, John Paul II, and he and his wife took a tour down in the catacombs. And Kirk, just to kind of mess with his wife, ran off and hid – In the catacombs of Rome in these (laughs) sacred tombs, and he started making all these ghosts. Yeah, so anyway, my point is, Kirk was very funny, and a lot of what he did, whimsy, this this whole rebuilding is whimsical, so they actually found, if I remember right, and I'd have to double-check this, Mark, but one of those lions, the toupee, is actually a toupee modeled after one of the Three Stooges. Oh,
1: yeah, that's right. It was in the
2: caption. I remember that. And it's actually, it's Aslan. So this is Narnia but with the Three Stooges headpiece on top. So this is how weird (laughs) <laughs> An eccentric, yeah, uh, weird in a good way, right? But yes, very eccentric. <laughs> well, the, the, you <laughs> talk about how
1: Russell Kirk had a great sense of humor. This this reminds me of the one great Kirk story that I know from Acton's history because Russell Kirk was involved with Acton. He was on our original yeah. board oh, of absolutely. advisors here,
2: very important.
1: And he was the uh, he was I don't know if he was the MC at our first event, but at our first annual dinner, William F. Buckley Jr. was there as the keynote speaker, and it, to introduce Buckley uh, was Russell Kirk. So two really uh, eminent figures in m- modern American conservatism, and Kirk's intro for Willie methbuckley Buckley was essentially um, a request that he move the headquarters of National Review magazine from the uh, from the horrible. Uh, East Coast from Sodom and Gomorrah, exactly from from Manhattan <laughs> into the Waters Building next to uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, next to the Acton Institute, and and thus sort of redeem it from its <laughs> its horrible location. I I don't think Buckley uh, he, he may have just laughed. Yeah, I don't know I, if he had anything to say about that, but it was it was a fantastic moment. That is fantastic.
2: I love that story.
1: <laughs> well, I gotta uh, I, I got we have to wrap this up, but I want to ask one more question. Sure. and that is, Kirk comes on the scene in the 1940s, 1950s, at a time when American conservatism was in disarray. It was uh, at, at a weak point, and he gave it form and structure. And he died in 1994, I believe, just as, yep. right around the time that the Republicans were taking over Congress. And That's right. There was right. sort of a right resurgence yeah. of, of conservatism I, I, in America again. Uh, I have to say, I think right now we're at a point where, once again, American conservatism is kind of – Perhaps a little rootless, hmm. uh, especially in, a, in, the, in the visible public leadership of the movement. There are so many different voices, but there's no Russell Kirk type person who can intelligently bring it all together, it seems. Yeah. Uh, it, and I I sort of, as I was reading the conservative mind, thinking this is a 35-year-old man writing this book. That's right. Uh would it even be possible for something like this to happen today? I, I, and I, I don't know. I, I would tend to think, no, I don't know how you would influence the public as broadly as Kirk was able right. to do in the 1950s uh, with a similar approach today. It'd have to be totally different. What would Kirk say about the state of
2: conservatism today? He, Yeah, thanks, Mark. I, I can't say for sure, obviously, because he's been dead now for so long. But I don't think he'd be happy. I, I think in particular, the idea that we would sell conservatism as a part of a bookstore or, or that we would sell it on the radio uh, or even on TV. I think that would not go over well with him. You know, conservatism is really meant to be this thoughtful thing. And one of the things, and this is where Kirk, I think there's a uh, there's so many elements of genius in him, but this is not someone who said one thing and did another. This is, you know, going back to our talk about his charity, he truly believed that real change Comes from acts of love. It really does come from one person helping another, and that that's what makes history over time. You know, you go, you'll always have these great figures who rise and fall, but real history, and this is so Augustinian, but real history is moment to moment. And I think he'd be very upset about where conservatism is. I think he would reject a lot of the ways that it's gone, but he also would not leave, he would not, ha- he would not be without hope. And in particular, he loved to say, quoting from Edmund Burke, uh, that wherever there is at least a heart beating, there is always hope. And that uh, who would have thought in 1953 that this dissertation written by this obscure guy from Michigan would have done, you know, become an international bestseller. Uh, And we don't know where that'll come from. And of course, what's interesting too, Mark, just to answer that somewhat quickly, you know, you think about Kirk, he never could have been a true public figure because he didn't have the personality. But once Goldwater came along and you have this incredible charisma, then, and and. They were very close friends, by the way. We mm-hmm. hadn't gotten into that. They were extremely close friends. But then then you have this guy who's uh, an, Air, an Air Force pilot. You have this guy who's an entrepreneur. He speaks well. He's handsome. And he's basically giving the Kirkian message. Reagan did the same thing, and I think what matters is not that one person will arise to do this, but that we'll have some intellectuals out there, some thoughtful people who are doing the right thing, lots and lots of very good people doing lots of little things in neighborhoods and elsewhere, places then like Acton, which can distribute those ideas between you know, all of these various groups, and maybe a charismatic political leader who can pull that all together. That, I think, if there's a hope, that's where it's going to come from.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful to end on a note of hopefulness. Oh, I hope uh, so, Mark. You I, know, it's it. There, there are so many ways that you can look at the world today and say things are just dark. But the reality is that that the quote
2: from Burke, where there's a heart beating, that's there's right. hope. That's Always. that's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful way to look at the world. And, and Mark, I do want to, I know we're ending, but I do want to say thanks to Acton. I, this. Acton is exactly the kind of organization that allows a free society to work properly. Absolutely. So, what you're doing here is essential. Well, we appreciate that. And
1: I i, I was going to say uh, at the beginning, I wanted to compliment uh, Hillsdale College as well. Oh. We, uh, it one is of the pretty things, precious. Pretty one special. One of the things we have around here is like a whole flock of Hillsdale grads. And every, <laughs> the one thing that I notice about Hillsdale grads, every one of them that, that I meet, they're kind, decent, good citizens. That's smart. And they're they're smart, yes, but they 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 know they understand the fundamentals of America, and that's a wonderful thing. It's it's they unfortunately actually, rare in American collegiate education. Today. I,
2: they actually believe in small R Republican duty, and it's amazing. I love. It's them. a wonderful thing. Absolutely love them.
1: Well, Brad, I want to thank you for oh, thank taking you, some time Mark. to join it was us. Fun the talking. book. Yeah, the book uh, by Bradley J. Berzer is uh, Russell Kirk, American Conservative, just released uh, as we record this on November 5th today. Congratulations, and I wish you well with the book. Thanks for uh, having me. Oh, absolutely. You can pick it up on Amazon and uh, hopefully at your local bookseller as well. And, uh, Brad, best to you. Thank Thank you you for talking. You too, Mark.
0: Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to reach our podcast team here to let me know what you think of the show or even suggest topics you'd like to hear covered, email me at actinline at actin.org. Actinline is available on Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found.